Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I have a summer reading list, but with the events going on, you need a late winter and spring reading list. And it's real simple, simple, I should say. You need to read Angela Stent and Elizabeth Economy. On Stent, it's Putin's world. And for Elizabeth Economy, it is the widely anticipated the world. According to China, her books have been definitive for decades. Dr. Economy joins us this morning with the Hoover Institute. Liz, congratulations on the new effort at the bottom of the book after the Olympics, after Ukraine, you talk about the China reset. What is the reset towards the party Congress? Uh, So, yeah, the party Congress, the 20th party Congress is coming this fall, October uh, or perhaps November. Uh, Xi Jinping will likely be reselected for his third term as uh, general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh, He has amassed an enormous amount of institutional authority, ruthlessly uh, rooted out his political enemies, whether in the Communist Party or, you know, in the broader civil society. Uh, You know, say a word against Xi Jinping and you will be disappeared for four years or 18 years. Um, And so this will mark, uh, I think, the beginning of the third term uh, for Xi Jinping, the third five-year term. You Uh, you know, he's got... I was going to say he's got an ambitious agenda ahead of him. Um, you know, again, a robust Chinese Communist Party at the forefront of the political system, doubling uh, per capita GDP by 2035, uh, right. bolstering the PLA. So got to see what, he, what he's able to do. It's all great. But to be honest, you've been absolutely original in saying he's more fragile domestically than we perceive. Do you stand by that? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, we can look just back to that uh, first month, uh, second month after uh, the COVID pandemic broke out in China uh, and look at what happened on the Internet when you had, you know, a week or so of of freedom on the Internet and you had, you know, a million people and more calling for freedom of speech and criticizing the government. Uh, Of course, Xi Jinping went and hunted them all down afterward. uh, But uh, but I think we have to be uh, sort of attuned. Uh, to the fact that just because we don't see dissent uh, within the system, that it doesn't exist. Uh, Just because he's amassed institutional authority doesn't mean he has uh, the full legitimacy uh, that he would have if he were in an electoral system. Uh, China is as polarized, uh, even maybe more so than the United States, uh, along gender lines, along ethnic lines. You have the battle between the entrepreneurs like Jack Ma, you know, who are being crushed right now and the bureaucratic class. And you have this, you know, yawning gap in terms of income inequality. So I think it's, it, you know, we, we tend to focus on what Xi Jinping says, this grand vision of China reclaiming its centrality on the global stage. Uh, but you're very right to point to what's going on inside China uh, and the kinds of challenges that Xi Jinping faces. Elizabeth, does it matter if public sentiment is souring on Xi Jinping or is Xi Jinping's uh, predominance over the entire region pretty much guaranteed regardless? And it just matters how hard he'll clamp down. 
So I think it does matter. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter in the sense I don't, I'm not predicting that you're going to have, you know, mass protests on the Chinese street calling for the, you know, downfall of Xi Jinping. But I think where it matters is that uh, if you have enough headwinds, right, a really slowing Chinese uh, economy, the international pressures that are coming to bear uh, on China currently, right, he's, he's, you know, created so many of his own problems with regard to countries, for example, in Europe or in parts of, of Asia. Uh, so if you have these headwinds uh, coming, uh, you can have people in the Chinese elite, other leaders who aren't happy about the direction uh, in which China is moving the country, right? Again, this crackdown on the sort of what's been the most innovative and creative part of the Chinese economy, right, the fintech sector, uh, you can have the, that sentiment, that broader uh, popular sentiment can feed into uh, sort of the other leaders claim that something needs to change, yeah. that Xi Jinping needs to take a step back. So I, I think there can be a constellation of forces that could force change. Not predicting it, but I think we have to, again, remain attuned to the possibility. At the same time, right now we're looking at the mounting Russia-Ukrainian conflict, and sort of on the on the heels of this, you get this tightening relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and this idea that if uh, Russia is somehow caught off, uh, cut off from the Western world, Xi Jinping could come to his rescue. How close is that alliance? You know, look, Russia and China have had um, a, a long history of working together, for example, in the United Nations. And, and really since 2014, we've seen the relationship become closer. Trade has increased slowly, uh, but Russia remains a major arms supplier to China. They've increased the number and the scope of their joint military exercises. When uh, Xi Jinping gave a speech in Moscow a couple of years back, he said that Putin was his best friend. Uh, in the international uh, community. Uh, and we saw, of course, yes, the joint statement uh, during the Olympics where they basically called for a new world order. Uh, and so I think um, the relationship is close. Doesn't mean that there aren't problems. Um, also, I think it bears noting that, that China's ambassador uh, to Ukraine last month uh, put a piece in Ukrainian newspaper saying that uh, China supported Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, so I do think China would probably come in and backfill uh, for Russia economically uh, to help out. But I don't think that there is sort of undiluted support for, for any sort of Russian military action in Ukraine by, by the Chinese. Um, Liz, I, I want to go uh, back to the combination of Angela Stent's work at Brookings and, and, and your work as well. Angela Stent talks about the risk that we end up going back to Yalta in a tripolar international relations, where it is about America, Russia, and a nascent China. Is that what China wants? I mean, does China want a new Yalta where it's just a triangulation and that's it? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think uh, China views, uh, you know, its rise on the global stage. Um, you know, its hope is to surpass the United States. I think it looks at as at Russia largely as a junior partner in all of this. I mean, I think the Russian economy is about a tenth the size uh, that of China, and so I don't. In many respects, I don't think that China looks at Russia as a completely equal partner. Um, I think Xi Jinping's vision is focused, you know, squarely on the future of China and China's efforts to reclaim centrality on the global stage. 
uh, you know, it's looking to redraw the map of the Asia Pacific to push the United States out uh, as the regional hegemon to embed Chinese values uh, and policy preferences globally. Uh, to, the, to the extent that Russia supports China in that effort, to the extent that it bolsters China's efforts, I think China welcomes <laughs> Russia's support. But I don't, I don't think it looks out at the world and thinks that there are going to be three equal you know, partners sitting around a table, Russia, China and the United States. Liz, always wonderful to hear from you. The absolutely brilliant Elizabeth Economy of the Hoover Institute there. Right now, we are honored to bring you Robert Horbatz, Ambassador Horbatz with Tideman Advisors, I should say, in his work within various Republican and Democratic administrations. He is tarred and feathered as a member of the Clinton clan, but what you don't know is Horbatz has 11,200 pages, 5.6 linear feet in the Gerald Ford Library from his work with President Ford years ago. We're thrilled that Bob Horbatz could join us this morning. Bob, I, I look at your work over time, and I want to go back to you as a newly minted freshman at Tufts University, and there was a small matter of the Cuban Missile Crisis only years before. We allowed Khrushchev to save face. How do we allow Putin to save face? Well, I think if there's a way uh, that Putin can save face, it's to recognize that the Russians, uh, as Angela Stent has said, have a deep historical affinity for Ukraine. I mean, the, it's very closely connected to the Russian Orthodox Church. A lot of Russian and Ukrainian history are tied up with one another. And Russia perceives that it has a right to have an influence, if not control, over <clears throat> Ukraine. It's part of Russia's notion of having an expanded influence in the new era, just as the Soviet Union did in that region uh, decades ago. Uh, I think that the, the thing that he wants probably most is a very clear indication, if not a firm commitment, that Ukraine will not join NATO. How do we thread that needle? That's critical. How do we do that when the secretary says we want an open door policy? I think you can do it in the way we've done it in, in the Middle East, in a curious way, and that is you're not definitive about it. You simply say there are no plans and no immediate plans and no medium-term plans for Ukraine joining NATO without giving up the right of the Ukrainians and of NATO to bring NATO, bring Ukraine into NATO at, at some given point. So you don't make a definitive commitment not to have Ukraine in NATO, but you make it very clear that there are no plans in the immediate future to do so. Ukrainians have more or less said that, and NATO has more or less said that. And that enables him to go back to his people and say, look, this is not going to happen anytime soon. Don't worry about it. It's probably not going to happen at all without us giving up the right to have it join if it wants to. Bob, based on the, diploma, the diplomatic tea leaves that we're hearing out of all sides, does it make sense to you that there is relative complacency in the oil market? No, it does not. Because if there's any small chance 
of an invasion. And Tony Blinken has more or less said that he thought there was a high probability that would be very disruptive of the uh, of the oil and the gas markets both. Russia's a major supplier. The pipeline, at least one of the two pipelines, would probably be shut down. Uh, the notion that we would sell oil or gas to Western Europe in an inflationary environment already in the United States uh, should be concerned enough to be uh, wary of what oil prices would do in the event of, of war. Well, but there is this argument that Russia does not want that, that Russia wants to maintain its dominance over oil supply and gas supply to Europe. How much does that get uh, become an overly factored in aspect at a time when Vladimir Putin definitely seems like he has a point that he wants to make? Well, that's one of the dilemmas Russia has at this point, and that is Russia clearly wants to be a major supplier of gas and oil to Europe, and a war would disrupt that, disrupt that quite severely. Um, so if, when, when Putin makes his calculations about whether there should be a war, he's going to have to look at the Russian economy, which is in no great shakes at this point, and, uh, and, and, and recognize that the oil market, which is key to the Russian economy and the gas market, particularly oil, uh, is key and that that would be disruptive and that would send a very negative blow to, uh, to the, the, the Russian economy which he wants to, to bolster. So he, he wants, he, he can't really have it both ways. If he wants to have a war, he's gonna have to suffer severe economic consequences and those would come through disruption in the oil market. Bob, brilliant and tremendous to have you on the show with us as always. Bob Hormatz of Tiedemann Advisors. Kelsey Barrow has one of the toughest jobs on Wall Street. There's a guy named Michael she's got to report to, and he is tough as nails. And that what that means is pro-acuity. We do not talk about overnight index swaps. That is massive, massive inside fixed income uh, baseball. It's something you'd see in Chapter 23 of Frank Fabozzi. Kelsey Barrow joins us now from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And what you're focused on is not the spot overnight index swap, but out a couple years. Translate for mere mortals. Yeah. Absolutely. So the OIS curve, what it shows us, the forward OIS curve is the path for the Fed funds rate, not just this year, but into 2023 and 2024. And one of the things that is really interesting about the curve right now is it's actually started to invert. So the market is pricing in rate cuts in 2024. And this is unusual because I mean, the, the economy is still extremely strong, 500,000 uh, average job growth right. per month, um, yet we're seeing these cuts. And, and the bottom line is this will continue until the market is proven wrong. They need to see the cut happen. They need to see the economy not break down as a result of higher rates. That's the only way you get that higher terminal right. rate that everyone's talking about. So for about. you and me, our world stops Friday night at 7 p.m. That's okay. Hold on. I'll have another drink, but I've got to read J.P. Morgan Weekly Prospects right now, Ferroli and company are going to publish tonight off the Fed speak today. Can the Fed speak today move your world? No, I don't think the Fed speaks going to, uh, to move the world. This is what I noticed from the minutes. And I know you don't like to read the minutes, but let me just tell you about what what is was not said in the minutes. Right. Kelsey did a research, Tom. She did a research. Carry so on. It's not about what they said. It's actually the words they didn't say. So Please let me tell you. Please go. The, word, the words they didn't say 
transitory. Transitory is completely gone from the lexicon. Two, the two other words they didn't say, gradual or steadily or measured. They have completely refused to categorize this cycle. So are you getting out in front of Bruce Kasman now and talking 50 beeps for sure? Yeah. If the market oh, is allowing it, John they're Saber. going to walk through that door. Bob Michael's there. I caught up with Bob early this week, Kelsey. He wants to see 50. What he said, Kelsey, was interesting. And I know you two work really closely with each other. It's what happens if we don't get a 50 basis point hike. He actually thinks we get an adverse reaction because the market starts to believe they have not got control of this. What would you look for? Right. So the market doesn't like to be surprised and the Fed doesn't like to surprise the market. And so if the market is pricing in a high probability of 50 basis points, the Fed should take that opportunity, take it as a blessing and go with it. I mean, I think the thing here is that they want the market to follow the data and the data after over the last couple of weeks, we got the CPI report, we got the payrolls report with the backward revisions for the full year. All we're seeing is that the economy is still red hot. And unless Powell comes out and walks this market back, if the market is pricing 50 basis points, the Fed should walk through that door. Well, let's talk about credit strategy now. What is it, Kelsey? So in credit, uh, we're still seeing some opportunities, but we really do want to start focusing on getting higher in quality and focusing on structures that are shorter duration. So that's things like uh, securitized credit, uh, bank loans. And I'd also like to say, you know, we're looking at uh, EM local this year, which is a really interesting one because you'd think with the central banks on the move, this would not be a good time for emerging market local debt. But actually, it's been one of the only areas of the fixed income market that has had positive returns. And my observation here is that EM central banks who were hiking like crazy in 2021 have actually had the foresight and, and the diligence that DM central banks didn't have um, and were the ones that were hiking rates now have the cushion and have been able to withstand more of this volatility um, this year with the DM central banks moving forward. Kelsey, until a couple of weeks ago, the Fed has really dominated all headlines with respect to markets. And now we're being distracted or perhaps dominated by the Russia Ukraine. Ukraine conflict. There's been a huge divide into what the Fed response would be and what the market response would be should uh, the escalation continue to get worse. What's your view in terms of does it make it more likely for the Fed to go and hike more quickly or less? Yeah. So in the very near term, we know that treasuries serve as a safe haven, a flight to quality. They go to the most liquid point on the curve, that seven to 10 year point. That's what's gonna rally when there's a lot of uncertainty. But when I look at the minutes, going back to those minutes, they mentioned geopolitical tensions a number of times and they only mentioned it in the context of higher inflation, upside inflation risks. So I don't think that this conflict is going to stop the Fed from removing accommodation. This is the key concern for a lot of people who are relying on the Fed as a put, and maybe not explicitly, and they realize that it's not going to be, but what is the implication for a market that could potentially be torpedoed by an economy that's slowing in the face of these higher oil prices, in the face of faster inflation, but with a Fed that does not respond? The Fed is in a very challenging spot. I mean, we've been saying this for a while and it really hasn't gotten any better. Uh, so I think the Fed is going to need to watch financial conditions closely. And, you know, at this point, financial conditions are still very easy. Um, and so they watch that. I know they watch credit spreads. Um, and at this point, although they yeah. are wider on the year, um, you know, there isn't an, an issue with companies being able to get mm -hmm. the liquidity that they need.
John, the committee expects it will soon be appropriate to raise the target range. The committee decided to have lunch. Beginning in February, the committee will increase its holding. I'm reading the damn is that, minutes. Is that your version John, of the minutes? this is more boring than I expected. <laughs> Kelsey came out with a call this year, Tom, before almost everybody else, which was the ECB will hike this year. Kelsey, you said it in early January. Then all of a sudden, week after week after week, everybody started to join in. What changes for the Fed this time around when the ECB is set to get involved as well. So sell-offs in U.S. Treasury yields are not generally sustainable unless they're global in nature. Because what happens, and we saw this in, in 2014 and 2015, for example, is that when the Fed tries to go on its own, the dollar strengthens, that tightens financial conditions, and the Fed ultimately has to back down. The fact that all the central banks are moving together is very, very powerful. So the ECB, sure, you know, they're, they're still a long way behind the Fed. They, they want to see wage growth. They have to end QE um, before they, they focus on raising rates, but they're, they're going to get there. And then I'll just say the next shoe to drop, and, and you know this is still far out in the horizon, but this is, these are the types of things that we're really thinking about further out in the future is what happens with the BOJ and their yield curve target? What happens when um, Kuroda ends up moving out of the position and someone else comes in and we start to see inflation move higher because right now inflation there, it's still negative, but there's a lot of distortions there. So we do actually think uh, inflation is, is still low in Japan, but we could be getting closer to positive inflation fairly soon. Corona is the last man standing. What would drag him away from all of this, Kelsey? So not in the near term. He's going to stay put. We just saw that uh, the Bank of Japan continued to uh, to defend their yield curve target. So they're not in any rush. Nothing is really putting the same pressure on them. You know, they still have negative inflation, whereas they don't need to deal with the headline of seven, eight percent inflation like the U.S. has. So they're not going to step away anytime soon. But when you think about what causes uh, a, a more meaningful repricing in term premium across developed market needs, you you have to think behind beyond the U.S. and you have to think about the BOJ, the ECB, and all of them moving together. Cassie, next time, 1 p.m. Fridays, <laughs> we all read the minutes on Bloomberg Real Yield. You know that. Some Cassie of us Barrow. read them on Bloomberg Surveillance, too. Two of Just us. Saying. Two of, of us. J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Cassie, thank you very much. Let us get right to it. Andrew Sheets with us, writing a wonderful summary of the Morgan Stanley view and this on cross-asset analysis, of course, of London. Andrew, good morning. What will you write this weekend? I don't care about, I'm going to front run your clients right now. I want to know the theme that you're focused on as you write this weekend. Well, look, I mean, I think a theme that we've been very focused on is this idea that the year could really be kind of the year of three acts or three parts. And I do think we're in the, the hardest part right now. You know, it's the first quarter where the growth uncertainty is the highest, where the inflation uncertainty is the highest, because inflation's high and it hasn't yet started to come down yet, where the policy uncertainty is the highest, because we haven't yet had that very important March meeting where the Fed's going to give us, I think, quite a bit more detail about how it's thinking on policy, and where the geopolitical risk is, is the highest. And so I think these are still major issues to the market. These are still reasons we're not advising investors to, to buy the dip, so to speak. But these are also factors that could look very different as we're thinking about you know, April and, and May. And I think that's also something that's important to keep in mind. Andrew, I know how closely you work with Mike Wilson. And over the last few weeks, I think what's built up over there is something really interesting on the growth side. You framed that as inflation first, 
then policy response to it. The next leg is the growth story in the back half of this year. Just how bad, Andrew, do you think this is going to be? Well, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And I think this is where, you know, the, the China policy response is very important. And, and the fiscal pol- the fiscal story more broadly is, is very interesting, right? You have contractionary fiscal policy in the U.S. and the U.K., but you're going to have easing fiscal policy in China on our on our forecasts and easing fiscal policy in the eurozone because the recovery fund the recovery fund funds are finally going to get spent. So I think this is a complex picture overall. Morgan Stanley's economists think growth this year is going to be solid. It's it's going to be be good actually. But I think this is still the part of the year where that uncertainty in growth is is pretty high and where there's a lot that could happen and a lot we don't know. So again hoping for more clarity on that. But but don't think investors are going to get that clarity maybe until you advance a little bit further in the year. So in the meantime, Andrew, don't buy the dip at the index level. What would you be buying? Well, I, I do think this is a market where you do have um, really diverse, I think, vulnerabilities and exposures to this narrative, right? So, so if we take a step back, I think what investors are worried about are valuations are high, inflations are high, central banks are behind the curve. But you know, valuations aren't high in a lot of non-U.S. equity markets. Um, inflation is not high in much of Asia. And central banks have not been slow to react in parts of EM. So I think focusing on cheaper global equity markets, I think fo- like something a market like Japan, focusing on markets where inflation <clears throat> is lower, so we're more bullish on fixed income in, in China, where we think inflation is low and policy is still going to be easing, and even in some of those emerging markets where they're way out in front, have been much more aggressive on policy, it's on those markets where we feel more comfortable receiving interest rates, being more constructive on, on duration. Most markets were not constructive on duration, but in some of those EMs we are. Andrew, do you think that equities really are pricing in the six rate hikes that the bond market seems to be pricing in? Well, on the U.S. side, we still think not quite. I mean, you know, the S&P this morning is roughly where our, our strategist, where, where, where my colleague Mike Wilson thinks will end the year. So that doesn't imply a whole lot of risk premium, um, again, to kind of reflect the, the increasing rate risk and the fact that we think real interest rates keep going up. But, you know, we think stocks in Europe, stocks in Japan, I think those markets are fine if, if rates are a bit higher. Those are markets with very high equity risk premiums, a lot of ability, we think, to absorb higher interest rates. So, you know, those are markets that we think can can end the year higher, uh, higher by double digits. And so I think there is a real divergence there, but still in the U.S. assets where we're most concerned, a little bit more risk premium is required. Andrew, how are you thinking about oil as you take a look at this call right now? If oil prices stay where they are, climb to $100 a barrel, how does that change your asset allocation in the U.S. and beyond? Yeah, so there's there's obviously a big debate around oil. Um, uh, you know, we're in the more bullish camp. I'm in the more bullish camp. And so our thinking is that demand is ultimately going to be reasonably strong this year or demand is going to keep increasing because you know, Morgan Stanley is forecasting nominal GDP to increase by about 6% this year on a global basis. That should mean more oil is used. And supply remains very low. And, and that supply is going to take a long time to ramp. It's as, as you were discussing in the last segment, it's just not really responding to higher prices in the way it usually does. So strong demand, more limited supply, all of that makes us think that the oil price will be higher. And the right. curve is also backward dated. So it's not very hard or 
it's easier for oil to exceed what's what's currently priced in. Andrew, I've been focused on growth, and you mentioned it. I love what you said there about pretty good growth is what Morgan Stanley sees. To me, it is the great growth guess of 2022. Which of the growth guesses is the market priced for? Tepid growth, Morgan Stanley growth, or even a surprise buoyant growth? Yeah, so Tom, I think this is fascinating because I think it depends on what market you're looking at. If you look at the copper price, it looks like the market is expecting very good growth. If you look at the completely flat UK 2's 10's curve or the inverted US 2's 10's curve one year forward, it seems like the market's very skeptical that growth can hold up to interest rate hikes. So I think that there's a lot of... This, you know, on a cross-asset basis, kind of very different growth being priced in where you look. Um, ultimately, we think that the market can can price in a higher terminal interest rate, that central banks are going to be able to hike further before this cycle ultimately ends. Um, this is also a case where we do think that the, the oil price can, can rise further to price in more, more growth optimism. And then on the equity side, I think you want to be expressing those cyclical exposures you know, outside of the U.S. It's in European cyclicals, it's in cyclicals in parts of Asia, where we think that there's more, much better risk reward uh, around this idea that ultimately growth will be okay, albeit with high uncertainty. Andrew Sheets, as always, sir, of Morgan Stanley, looking out for the note this Sunday, the Sunday start from Morgan Stanley, always the best way to start the week. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.